And this is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we open God's word together this morning, let's bow our heads together and ask God's guidance on our study. Our Father, we are so thankful that we have this opportunity now to look at your word, to study your word, for you have breathed out these words through the apostles and the prophets of the Old Testament. And Father, we know that you have guaranteed their truth, their accuracy, and that their purpose is to enlighten us as to the message of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, and also to help us to understand how we as believers, members of your uh, royal family, are to live in this life, how we are to think and how we are to live. As we study this, continuing this study of understanding the significance of our Lord's ascension and session in heaven, we pray that you would help us to understand how this relates to and makes so significant our spiritual life in this church age. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We will be here briefly, and then we will go to Psalm 60, Psalm 68. So our study this morning is on God's victorious ascent Looking at Psalm 68, which is quoted here in Ephesians 4, because as David writes this hymn, he is also, I believe, aware that God is also relating this to a future ultimate spiritual victory, that strategic victory of the cross. And so he understands that while he is writing about a historical event, that it has typological significance. Now, what does that word mean, typological? The Greek word is tupas and came over into English in the idea of a type. And that's not a word that we normally or typically use in... um, in our everyday English. And what it basically means is as an example or as a a picture, a portrait of something that will come about later on. For example, one of the most well-known types of Christ in the Old Testament is that of the lamb, that the lamb that was without spot or blemish that was sacrificed there on the day of Passover and the original Passover had the blood applied to the doorpost of the house, that that 
lamb was a picture of the ultimate salvation that would be accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the antitype. That's the word that's used. That is what the type refers to, that Christ is the antitype. He is the lamb of God who takes away uh, the sin of the world. And so we have these various uh, pictures and types and examples in the Old Testament that foreshadow what will ultimately take place in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and in his accomplishment of our salvation, and also in things that they did not quite understand because they might have a typological uh, significance to, um, to the church age. Now, what we have looked at in this study on the Ascension in Session going back to Acts 1 and other gospel passages that describe the ascent to recognize that it is a physical ascent of the Lord Jesus Christ in his resurrection body and hypostatic union, the God-man ascended physically and visibly from a specific geographical point on the Mount of Olives. And this also fulfilled a type because as we saw in the Old Testament, that when the presence of God, his indwelling presence in the temple of Solomon, uh, when he left, when, the, when God departed, the glory of God departed from the temple in Jerusalem, uh, Ezekiel uh, portrays this, that as he departed, he, the, they, he saw in a vision the glory of God going to the entry uh, to the eastern gate across the uh, Kidron Valley and up to the top of that ridge that is known as the Mount of Olives and then ascending to heaven. And so this is the same pattern we see with the Lord Jesus Christ as he departs, he crosses with his disciples the Kidron Valley, goes to the, uh, goes to the crest of that ridgeline of the Mount of Olives, and then he ascended from there uh, to heaven. And we saw passages where the writer of Hebrews and others talk about that Jesus ascended through the heavens. And so he is going to a location and that his destiny, destination is the right hand of God the Father in the throne of God where he will take his seat. Now this is all significant because uh, as I pointed out the last time, there's, it relies on a number of passages in the Old Testament in order to put the background uh, together. And so first of all, we, are, we must look at these five messianic psalms and to see how they connect together so we'll look at psalm 2 psalm 8 psalm 89 which is the davidic covenant we'll just touch briefly on a couple of these psalm 132 and psalm 110 and that also relates to elements in daniel 7 and in here in psalm 68 18 now we're not going to go through these in this order what I'm going to take us through is the order of events as they are fulfilled prophetically, as they're when they're literally fulfilled. So we have to look at those psalms. We have to understand these, these critical terms that are used to describe the Lord Jesus Christ, to describe the Messiah, these messianic titles, Son of Man, Son of God, Son of David, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. 
all these relate to understanding this this dynamic event that takes place and how it relates to the present church age and our future ruling and reigning with Christ. We have to understand, third, the Davidic covenant as the foundation for understanding all of these things. And then last, we touch on the Melchizedekian priesthood and its fulfillment in Christ. We'll touch on that just a little bit this morning. All of these things come together. And it's just a fascinating study. And last time, two weeks ago, just to remind you and get all of our attention back onto this passage, I talked about three questions, three questions that helped kind of focus us on this on this study. And the first is, what did the rejection of Christ do to the kingdom program of God? Remember, Jesus uh, was came, and his message in the first half of his uh, time on the earth was, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He wasn't the first to announce, to, to present that, the forerunner of the Messiah in fulfillment of that last prophecy in the Old Testament at the end of Malachi, there's a prophecy that one would come like Elijah uh, and that, that would announce the Messiah. And so that is John the Baptist. And John the Baptist came. That was his message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He, he's not talking about simply getting saved. He's not talking about believing in the promise of the Messiah, so you have eternal life. He's talking about the fact that whether they're saved or not saved, uh, the Jewish people and the Jewish nation needs to turn back to God according to the promise of Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1, that when you turn back to God, and that's the, the Hebrew word shuv, that when you turn back to God, then God would restore all of the Jewish people from the four corners of the earth and establish his kingdom. And so that's the message, and it was, it, it was developed all through the Old Testament. So John the Baptist is announcing this. Jesus comes. He has the same message. He sends his disciples out. They have the same message. And yet about halfway through his ministry, the opposition from the Pharisees came to this crescendo and they accuse him of performing his miracles and casting out demons by the power of Satan, by the power of Beelzebul. And this is a complete uh, rejection by the representatives of the nation, the leaders of the nation, and they have rejected the, the Messiah. And many of the people rejected him. And this was known, Jesus said, this was the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and that there would be uh, no possibility of, of uh, repentance after this. And the reason he said that is not because this is a personal sin, but it was a corporate sin of the nation, and that at that point uh, his rejection was, uh, was complete. And from that point on, he no longer goes to the people and the masses. He no longer speaks openly. His Everything is directed towards teaching and training the disciples in preparation for what's going to come next, which, of course, isn't the kingdom. It is the church age. But they don't quite understand that at all. They just know that he's training them. And so the whole ministry shifted there because once they rejected him as Messiah, the judgment upon Israel for that rejection, which was the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70, was set. That's why there's, there's no turning back. It's not a personal sin. It's not a loss of personal salvation. It is the nation is losing their 
uh, roll the kingdom. It's going to be postponed completely until Jesus returns at the second coming. So that's what we see. The rejection of Christ leads to the complete postponement of the kingdom of God. We are not in a spiritual form of the kingdom today. We are not in some already but not yet form of the kingdom today. These are very popular ideas that are around a lot uh, today, and this uh, is all based on a lot of fallacious thinking about the nature of the kingdom. And the kingdom all through the Old Testament was very clear. It is a literal, geophysical, political kingdom with Christ Jesus as the Messiah ruling and reigning from the throne of David in Jerusalem. So all this talk, all these choruses people sing today, everything about the kingdom are are all based on a a misunderstanding and misinterpretation of of the scripture. So with the postponement of the kingdom, something new is going to happen. And that was the second question. Why was the ascension of Christ necessary for the giving of the Holy Spirit? Uh, Because something new is happening, and he has to depart in order for the Holy Spirit's ministry to come. And then the third question is, what's the significance of the ascension of Christ for this new dispensation? And so I looked at this with several answers, and I said, first of all, God had a plan which he had kept to himself and was not revealed in the Old Testament wasn't revealed until after the rejection of the Messiah, and it was only hinted at prior to the crucifixion. It's not really revealed until that last night before Christ goes to the cross, and he's teaching and training the disciples in John 14, saying, I have to go to, uh, to heaven, and then the Father will send the Spirit. And it's not until after the church begins that the disciples begin to really understand what this is all about. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 3.9 talks about this as being hidden. It was a mystery that is a previously unrevealed truth, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. And so as we've studied in a couple of previous lessons, this ascension of Christ is fundamental to understanding uh, the role of the church-age believer now in relation to this angelic revolt because Christ is elevated to the right hand of the Father and in authority over the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. This puts us as church-age believers who are what? Who are in Christ. And what does that have to do with it? Because in Ephesians 2, 5, 6, and 7, the Apostle Paul says that when we trust in Christ, we are uh, made alive together in him. So we're in Christ, legally, positionally identified with him. That's what that phrase means. And so where is he? He is at the right hand of the Father. So we have been made alive together, Jew and Gentile, in him and raised together, and then what? Seated together in him in the heavenly places. That's our position, seated at the right hand of the Father. All of this relates to this cosmic purpose in the redemption that's accomplished by Christ in solving and uh, concluding this angelic revolt that's critical to understand uh, all of these different things. So he has achieved a victory and taken the high ground, as it were, in 
in this angelic revolt. And our role now being in him is directly related to that. Second thing pointed out the last time, two weeks ago, Christ himself said that he must ascend before he could send the Spirit. And this was because he was not yet king on the earth, and he had a new plan for a new people in the church age. And that's in John 16, verse 7. And then third, I pointed out that in the ascension, Christ is now serving as our high priest. He's prophet, priest, and king. Those are the three roles of Jesus, prophet, priest, and king. He functioned as a prophet in fulfillment of that prophecy in Deuteronomy 18 that there would be a prophet. Moses said there will be a prophet like me who comes, and he's uh, prophesying about the future Messiah. So Jesus comes as prophet at the first advent. And then when he ascends to heaven, he functions as a priest. He is our high priest. These are passages like Ephesians uh, 4, I think that's 4, should be 13, I believe, 13 and 15, Romans 8, 26 and 27 and 34, which talk about his, uh, his, his role as an intercessor and the role of the Holy Spirit as an intercessor and his role as an advocate for us in 1 John 2, 1. So that is distinctive for this church age. He's not functioning as king. He's not on some spiritual Davidic throne in the heavenlies. He is seated, as Romans 3.21 says, uh, Revelation 3.21 says, he is seated on the throne of his father. He's at the father's right hand. He's never portrayed in scripture as being on a throne until he returns as the king of kings and lord of lords. And then fourth, I pointed out that Christ is doing something else right now. Along with all of this, he's preparing a place for us, John 14, 1. So in these previous two lessons, we focused on the fact, number one, that the ascension completes his strategic victory on the cross. Now, remember, strategy has to do with the broad uh, broad. Uh, approach to a war or a conflict. For example, at the beginning of uh, the the, uh, Second World War, there was a, at the time, secret meeting between Churchill and Roosevelt, and one of the things they agreed on was when the United States came into the conflict, the focus must be first to defeat the Germans and then second to defeat the Japanese in the Pacific. So the priority was on the European theater over the uh, Pacific theater. And it is, that's a strategic decision. And then to accomplish that, you have your various uh, uh, tactical goals going all the way down to small unit tactics. And so the strategic victory at the cross is that Satan is defeated and in the ascension Christ is elevated in authority over all um, all principalities and powers. Now, in his deity, he already was, right? He's God. He's, a, he's the son of God. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's always in authority over all the angels. This is in his hypostatic union as a man. He is elevated in authority over the angels. And we are where? In him. This is all crucial to, we'll be fleshing all this out And so the strategic victory of Christ sets up this new plan for this new dispensation. And this is what forms our identity as church-age believers. It's foundational for understanding who we are. And then third, we're going to need to look. We looked at the Psalm 8 the last time and the phrase Son of Man 
and its use in Hebrews 2, 6, and 7. So I'm now focusing on this victorious ascent as it's developed in Psalm 68, 18. So just in terms of a little review, because this pertains to some of the imagery that we have in Psalm 68, in Acts 1, 9, when Jesus ascended to heaven, Luke writes, now when he had spoken these things while they watched, so they are looking at the whole thing. It, it probably didn't take an hour for him to ascend. It probably, but it, on the other hand, it wasn't in a split second. And it was something that they could observe, and they just stood there with their mouths open looking up into heaven. He is taken up, and what receives him? A cloud. Now, what does that mean? Does he just go up there and there just happens to be some clouds in the air over Jerusalem in um, the spring of the year, starting to get kind of hot at that time, not so many clouds. Rainy season is in the winter. This is not just a cloud. It is a representation of God receiving him. We're going to see this imagery throughout Psalm 68. So he's taken up, a cloud receives him. This is an indication that God is accepting him uh, back into heaven. His work has been completed on the cross, and now he is being restored, and he will be at the right hand uh, of the Father. Giotto di Bandoni uh, in the early 14th century portrayed this way, and you see down on the earth you have uh, the the, uh, physical uh, living Uh, believers represented here. You have uh, two angels represented here. Uh, These would represent the the disciples and and, uh, Mary at the uh, ascension. And then above you have Old Testament saints, and Jesus is ascending uh, through the heavens. As Hebrews 4.14 says, that he um, is our great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. So he's ascending to the right hand of the Father. And that's what will complete the first stage of what we've been studying, which is the ascension. Uh, As I remind you, the Bible speaks of heaven in three senses. The first heaven is the earth's atmosphere. The second heaven is the universe, which extends from the end of the atmosphere all the way out to its finite boundary. And then we have the third heaven, which is the throne of God. In 1 Peter 3.22, Peter says that he has gone into heaven, which uh, using a word that indicates going on a journey, he has gone into heaven and is present tense at the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him. Okay, that's completed action. With his ascent, that he ascends over them in authority. Critical for understanding a lot that we're going to just gets touched on or alluded to in Psalm 68, but it's critical to have this background. So in Ephesians 4 9, which is where uh, Paul will actually starts in in verse 8, where he quotes Psalm 68 18. In that verse, which isn't on the slide, he quotes it. He says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And then Paul is going to 
expound or explain this, starting in verse 9, he says, now he ascended. So he's going phrase by phrase, verb by verb, uh, noun by noun, to explain this. He says, now he ascended on high. He ascended. What does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. Now, one of the things that I need to point out here that is often misunderstood. There is a passage in First uh, Peter chapter three, verses nineteen and twenty, and this is a passage that talks about uh, Christ in those that interval of time after his crucifixion, before the resurrection, when he goes to uh, Sheol. And there are several compartments in Sheol, if you remember, and one of the compartments is the area where the fallen angels who had uh, violated their position in heaven and taken on uh, human bodies so that they could have uh, sexual relations with uh, human women and marry them, that rather bizarre incident that occurs back in Genesis chapter 6. So he goes to Sheol where they are in prison and he announces uh, that the strategic victory is complete. This seals their uh, their destiny, their punishment, their defeat, and he knows that. This isn't talking about that. I've had five or six people ask me this, and it, the way this is translated in the King James, I understand why people go there, but you're not paying attention to that C word. What's the C word? Context. Context context. That's not in the context of Psalm 68, 18, and it's not in the context here. That's not what it's talking about. So we always have to pay attention to what is the surrounding context, because that's where anything and everything gets its, gets its, its meaning. And so, you know, and then the follow-up question is, oh, well, well, if it doesn't refer to that, does that, did that happen? Of course it did. That's in First Peter 3, 19 and 20. But this isn't talking about anything related to that. And it looks that way because it says he descended into the lower parts of the earth. What it is saying, it, it, he descended to the lower part, comma, the earth. Okay? That's what it is saying. It is not saying he's descending into the lower parts inside the planet somewhere. The, he goes from heaven to the earth and then he's going to go what back to heaven and when he descends into the lower part of the earth that is what we call the um, incarnation that's what we celebrate in about a month the birth of Christ when Jesus the God that when the second person of the Trinity the God man enters into human history that is when he descends from heaven to the earth and then when he completes his mission, he ascends to go back. And that is what the apostle is pointing out here. Now, we're going to go back to Psalm 68 to work our way through that. And so now turn in your Bibles to Psalm, uh, Psalm 68. And uh, we'll begin in 18, and then we will uh, look at the whole uh, context. This is really a fascinating study. Another word for fascinating is something that's a pain. This is a difficult psalm to deal with. Umberto Casuto, who is an extremely conservative 
Jewish scholar, taught at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, published several commentaries and some additional uh, works that included a number of his uh, of his papers, uh, is just outstanding on co- his comments on the Hebrew text. Because he is not a believer, uh, he doesn't put all the he, he can't connect all the dots. But what I find fascinating with him is he observes dots that a lot of other people don't observe that are there. And if you're coming to the, to what he is saying with a solid understanding of New Testament theology, then you see how to connect those dots. And so it's very, very helpful. But he makes this comment. He wrote a paper on Psalm 68, and his opening statement is, there is possibly not another psalm in the entire Psalter that the commentators have found as difficult as Psalm 68, not only on account of the obscure verses that it contains, but also in regard to its general significance. And he then goes into about a page and a half where he is citing a wide variety of interpretations by both Jewish writers and many even conservative evangelical writers. And so when you come to a study like this, it's not always as simple as just reading it through because there are a lot of underlying issues and there's a lot of uncertainty about some of the figures of speech, some of the uh, idioms that are used, and it's generally uh, difficult. And uh, But we understand something about it simply because Paul quotes it in Ephesians 4. So that gives us a big clue as to what is going on. Now, if I were teaching on Psalm 68, I would spend a lot of time going through a lot of these other issues. But we don't have time for that. That's not germane to our study. So what I'm focusing on is going to be just what I believe this means. And I've read a lot. I've seen a lot. I've done a lot. I've I've gone through the background studies on a lot of this. And I think that uh, there are some interesting things here. And there's some interesting things that hit me that didn't hit me 20 years ago, the last time I really taught through this, because I hadn't done some of the studies like what we recently did on the angelic revolt where we looked at this council of the Elohim. Uh, sometimes that's translated council of gods, but who are these Elohim? Okay, and if you remember, I pointed out this is a term that is used in a variety of ways in Scripture, while it is, at, on the one hand, the generic term for God or for a deity of any kind in the Old Testament. It's not the proper name of God. That is Yahweh. But this is just refers to God or lowercase gods, which according to uh, Deuteronomy 24 and other passages relate to demons. And many times in the Old Testament, there are passages that say you are worshiping Elohim, these demons, these these false gods. And so we're going to look at that in a little depth. That opens it up a little bit. And trust me, nobody says has has got that right in my opinion. I think that solves some of the confusion when we get there. So let's look at the context a little bit to Psalm uh, 68, 18. We'll go back to verse 12. And what we should understand as we look at this passage 
is that the overall view of this passage is talking about a victorious procession to the sanctuary. Now, it's a lot of people will say, oh, well, the sanctuary must be the temple, so David could not have written this. But the superscript at the beginning says this is a psalm of David. Uh, the term that is used to describe the sanctuary is also used to describe the tabernacle. And so if you remember, there is a procession that takes place in the Old Testament when David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant, which signifies the presence of God, into Jerusalem and up to its permanent location on the Temple Mount, which is nothing more than... Oh, wait a minute. I've got a uh, glitch that occurs here, so we're going to have to go back and... There we go. Okay, so uh, it is that victorious procession that I believe is the focal point of this, this psalm. It is a psalm of David that is describing a victorious procession, a, a defeat of the enemies of Yahweh, and bringing him to his ultimate resting place there on Mount Zion, where the tabernacle is uh, at this time, uh, and will be at this time, and this is where the temple will ultimately be, ultimately be built. And so it is clear in verses uh, 12 through 14 that we have a rehearsal of God's victorious ascent from the departure with the Israelites from Mount Sinai until finally they have conquered the Jebusites, they have taken over uh, Jerusalem, and David is now bringing the ark to its ultimate resting place on Mount Zion, the mountain that God has has chosen. And so that's what we see here is a, a rehearsal or a reminder of the victories that God gave Israel, ultimately uh, leading to this. This is the high water mark of the conquest. They never conquered all of the land that God had promised them, because of their disobedience. But they, once they conquered Jerusalem, this is going to be God's resting place where God will put his name on the city. God, which God is going to uh, personally be present in the Holy of Holies in the temple. So in Psalm 68, 12, we read, Kings of armies flee. They flee, and she who remains at home divides the spoil. Now, those of you who have been paying attention and coming to the judges' study on Tuesday night or listening online, then just a couple of weeks ago, we began our study of that victory hymn after Deborah and Barak defeated uh, Yavin, the king of the Canaanites. And so you go back and carefully read through Judges chapter 5. There are several little allusions here in Psalm 68 to that particular psalm, and this is one of them. Who is the one who uh, remains at home and divides the spoil? In Judges chapter 5, at the end, that is an allusion to Yael, who is the woman who uh, took the tent peg and drove it through the temple of Sisera, the uh, general of Yavin's army. 
And so she then is going to be part division of the spoil. We'll go look at this again as we back out of the passage. Psalm 68.13 is an enigmatic passage, and it has the expression here is really describing a time of rest and reward as a result of the victory. Uh, Though you lie down among the sheepfolds, talking about Israel, this is a place of rest, a place of peace, and uh, where there is no longer conquest because because the the victory has been won. And it's really debated, and I'm not going to go into trying to understand the second half of that verse, so we'll go on to verse 14. And you have the phrase, when the Almighty, and the word there for Almighty is the word Shaddai, which is used most often in the book of Job to describe God. But the first time we see it is in Genesis uh, that Abraham uses this. And so it goes back to recognizing the and alluding to the Abrahamic covenant and the fulfillment to a large degree, not complete yet, because they don't take the whole la- the whole land, but it relates to the God fulfilling uh, to some degree that uh, promise, because Shaddai is identified with that with that covenant as well. So when the Almighty, that is Shaddai, scattered kings in it, it was white as snow in Zalman. Then we come to verse fifteen. This is where we're going to change up the uh, the. Uh, translation a little bit. In most translations, they will translate it somewhat literally where it talks about a mountain of God. Har is the Hebrew word for mountain. It's Har Elohim. Now, it's real easy for people to think, oh, well, that that's the mountain of God because that would be a, a, a prima facie sort of interpretation. But it doesn't make sense in the context it says a mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. So it's talking about the mountain of Bashan. Now, what is the mountain of Bashan? Bashan is an ancient name for what we refer to today as the Golan Heights. Now, if you've been to Israel, then um, then you've been there when we have been staying on the uh, western shore of the Sea of Galilee, and you look across the Sea of Galilee, and you can see just the high plateau that is on the on the east side. That's the Golan Heights because it's so high. Uh, before 1967 uh, and the and the 67 war, that was controlled uh, by the by the Arabs. And they had it lined with artillery that would randomly lob shells across the Sea of Galilee and land in Tiberias and other Israeli settlements on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. They had the high ground. And it wasn't until the 67 war that that Israel was able to take the high ground and take control of that and have uh, have peace. You, can you imagine living on the west shore of the Sea of Galilee and all of a sudden you would hear that whistle announcing that an artillery shell was coming in and you just hold your hands over your ears and wait and pray that it's not going to land in your bed. And that's the kind of situation Israel was was under. So this is Bashan. 
And just as you go north along that plateau, the elevation rises, and you come to this magnificent snow-capped peak. There's even snow there on the peak late into June, which is very hot in Israel, but that is the highest point in Israel, and that is Mount Carmel. And so you have these many peaks that are there. It's, it's beautiful. It's stupendous. The, the scenery is incredible. Physically, the beauty there is much greater than what one sees as you drive into Jerusalem. And you realize that the Temple Mount, where the temple was built, which is uh, called Mount Zion, is not so high. It's not so significant. In fact, the, the, the hills around Jerusalem are higher than the Temple Mount. It's not the most beautiful place at all, but that is where God placed his name. And that's what this is getting at. He says um, in verse 68:15, if we translate this, a mountain of the gods, that's just lowercase gods, Elohim used many times to refer to the false gods of the Canaanite pantheon, and we have also seen that this is a term that is used to describe uh, the fallen angels, uh, the demonic hordes. And so there's that, that double entendre there that this is talking about these false idols, but behind the idols are these, are these fallen, fallen angels. And that this, that ridgeline as a high point is where they would have identified a, as a dwelling place of the God. Just like in, in Greek mythology, you have, uh, you have Zeus up on uh, Mount Olympus and in, um, um, uh, Syrian or Arama- Aramean mythology, it's on Mount, uh, Mount Zaphon and other places like that. So this would have been a high place that would have been a dwelling place of the gods. So the contrast here is between this so-called dwelling place of the gods, in quote, and then you come to verse 16 saying, why do you stare with envy uh, you mountains of many peaks. That's the mountain of Bashan. This is the mountain which, and, and then the contrast is with this, that is this, Mount Zion, is the mountain which God desires to dwell in. Yes, the Lord will dwell in it forever. In Psalm 2.6, uh, we see God saying, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And in Psalm 76.2, uh, God says in Salem, or David writes, in Salem also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. Now, the difficulty here, you see, and I put the phrase with envy in uh, italics because that's not in the original text. You just have a, a word there in Hebrew that is um, uh, ratzad, and it's only used this one place in the Hebrew text. So there's a lot of of debate about just exactly what it means, but it has that in the context, it is that these these gods are looking or staring at um, Mount Zion because this is the place where God has placed his name. There is a personification of the of the mountains here that they look with envy on Mount Zion, even though it of le- of lesser beauty. But this is where God has placed his name and his dwelling. And so therefore, it is, it is, you have this personification that these other mountains that are more physically beautiful 
uh, are looking with envy upon Mount Zion, where God will dwell forever. And then in verse 17, we read that the chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands. The Lord is among them as in Sinai in the holy place. So here we have another reference to Sinai, and we're going to see that there's references to Sinai uh, as well as Mount Seir in Psalm 68, just as we saw in Judges chapter 5. And so the writer of Psalms is pulling together these threads to make a, a remarkable point. But we have to understand what is happening at this point when he talks about the chariots of God are 20,000. In Deuteronomy 33, 2, he said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir, that is Edom. Mount Seir is down south. This is where the Edomites settled. The Lord came from Sinai. When did he come from Sinai? He comes from Sinai with the Israelites who are coming up from the south on the verge of the conquest. So this is starting from Sinai when God gives the law to Moses, gives them their uh, marching orders and how they will arrange all of their tribes, gives them the blueprint for the tabernacle. They spend a year constructing the tabernacle, and then they're going to march off to conquer the land that God has given them. And so this is rehearsing that whole victorious uh, procession. So the Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. See, we have those two words, Sinai and Seir, connected in Judges 5, talking about this same procession. Um, He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came with tens of thousands of saints from his right hand. That should be holy ones. It's not talking about humans. It's talking about uh, the angelic hosts the holy ones, that's what's translated saint. From his right hand came a fiery law for them. See, Judges 5, 4, and 5 says, Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the field of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens poured, the clouds also poured water, the mountains gushed before the Lord, this Sinai before the Lord God of Israel. See that connection. So to really comprehend what's going on here in Psalm 65, you have to control a lot of little details from Israel's background. In Psalm 18.10, we're told God rode upon a cherub and flew. He flew upon the wings of the wind. And in Isaiah 19.1, this is a burden or a prophecy against Egypt. Behold, the Lord rides on a swift cloud, and he will come into Egypt. So this imagery of the Lord riding on a cloud that is what's developed here in um, in verse 17 uh, is is throughout the Old Testament. Habakkuk 3.8, O Lord, you were displeased with the rivers. Was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the sea? That you rode on your horses, your chariots of salvation. So God is pictured this way numerous times in the Old Testament. And then we come to Psalm 68.18. You have ascended on high... You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord might dwell there. Now, this is just a a phenomenal statement here, and it's 68.18 that's quoted. But remember, who is this talking about? 
You have ascended on high. Who's ascended on high? Here it's Yahweh. Paul is going to apply that to Jesus, which is a remarkable statement that he is saying that Jesus is God by just quoting this with reference to Jesus. You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. Who are, who's captive? Who are the captives that are led captive? There's various views on this, and I believe that the, those who were captive in this context, who's captive? Who, who is it that ends up being redeemed um, through the 10th plague? They're purchased out of captivity. It's Israel. Okay, Israel are the ones who were captive, and it, God is the one who is picturing bringing them as his captives now to victory uh, at the Temple Mount in his procession. And then it says, you have received gifts among men. And this is typically interpreted to be that this is a conquest of the Canaanite kings, and so this is a tribute they bring to God, and I don't buy that at all. Uh, this is the fact that, that it, Israel, in their uh, tribute to God, are bringing offerings and gifts to God. The, the, those who were the captivity are now his captives, and they are bringing the ones bringing the gifts to God. And he says, even from the rebellious, of course, Israel was quite rebellious, uh, that the Lord may, may dwell there. Now, if you skip down to verse 24, and introduces this idea of a procession. They have seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. Now, this isn't the temple. This is the uh, would be the tabernacle. Now, this whole picture develops out of Psalm 68.1. If you go back to the very beginning of the of the psalm, what we recognize is that this is a psalm of David. In the superscript, it says, To the chief musician set... Oh, I'm sorry, I'm misreading. I'm looking at Psalm 69. Uh, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, a song. And then he says, Let God arise. Now, that's a very important term. This is a term in Hebrew that is typically used of calling upon God to rise up and defeat and destroy his enemies. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. Let those also who hate him flee before him. It's used that way as a term of calling upon God to rise up against his enemies in passages like Psalm 1713. Arise, O Lord, confront him, cast him down, deliver my life from the wicked with your sword. So that's a great way to pray. Rise up, O Lord, and take control of my situation. It's calling upon God to exercise his sovereign authority over our enemies. Psalm 7, 6, arise, O Lord, in your anger. And Psalm 12, 5, for the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord, I will set him in safety for which he yearns. Psalm 17, uh, 13, arise, O Lord. Psalm 9, 19, arise, O Lord. Psalm 10, 12, arise, O Lord. So that is typically used of God rising up in order to conquer his enemies. Now, there's a purpose for me going there. We see this in Numbers 10, 35, and 36. As Israel is about to set out from Mount Sinai, Moses said, Rise up, O Yahweh. 
and let thine enemies be scattered and let those who hate thee flee before thee. That's the background for the beginning of Psalm 68. And then when they would stop and rest, uh, he would say, return thou, O Lord, to the myriad thousands of Israel. And so when God would rise up, then the, the pillar of fire or the cloud would lead them on their march uh, through the desert. And so this started in the south, far south, lower left corner there, you have the location of Mount Sinai and then their march to the north to take in the promised land. We know what happened when they disobeyed God at Kadesh Barnea. God said, you're going to have to wander for 40 years for this generation to die off, and then you'll go into the land. But this is the beginning of that victorious procession to conquer the land that God had uh, given them. And so they're going to come up from the south, they'll go around Edom and Moab, and then they'll enter in here, and then you have the area of the conquest here, and this is uh, uh, portrayed for us and recounted for us in Joshua. In Joshua 3.15 we read, And when those who carried the ark came into the uh, Jordan, and the feet of the priests carrying the ark were dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of harvest. Uh, the waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap, and God and, and a great distance away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those which were flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. So God separated the waters coming down from the no- north at uh, opposite Jericho, and the people crossed on dry land, the priests carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. So this is their procession as they're going into the promised land. Now, later, after many different movements of the Ark, uh, the Ark is taken to uh, Jerusalem and is stored for a while at the house of Obed-Edom. And from there, David is going to bring the Ark of God up from the house of Obed-Edom into uh, the city of David. And so this is a remarkable procession. And every six paces, he's going to sacrifice an ox and a fatling. And David is dancing before the Lord, and he's dressed in a priestly garment. Now, he's not a priest. He's not a Levite. What's going on here? Well, what we understand here, David is also a type of Christ in many ways. He's king He's the the progenitor of the line that will culminate in Jesus of Nazareth, who's a, an heir of David. And so in Psalm 110.4, we'll get to that psalm next time, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you, talking to the Messiah, the one who's sitting on his right hand, are a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So you had two orders of priests. You had the king priest that is like the Gentile Melchizedek, and you have the Levitical priest. So David is functioning in a priestly role according to the order of Melchizedek, which is foreshadowing and is a type of the Messiah, the greater son of David, who will also be uh, functioning as our high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And so in the rest of that chapter in 2 Samuel 6, uh, we see the episode where David's wife, uh, Michal, 
uh, is going to uh, ridicule him because he's out there dancing in his ephod, and apparently he wasn't quite as uh, modest as he should have been, and so she ridicules him, and um, as a result of that, uh, she is going to be... um, uh, God is going to make her infertile, and she will not have any any children. So we come to uh, back to our context in Judges uh, 68, and all that that I'm saying here, I'm going to skip ahead to a concluding concluding slide for us, is that we have this order of events that there is first of all the ascension of Christ which is depicted in Psalm 68, 18 in terms of a type and is applied in Ephesians 4, 7 to 8. And he will ascend to the right hand of the Father. That is what we will look at more next time in Revelation 3, 21 and in Psalm 110, 1, where the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And then that is the beginning for his uh, priesthood. And then we will look at the other passages and connect the dots there. So all of this relates to us understanding what Paul is covering in just a very few words, but it is profound, and it emphasizes the fact that because he has this victory that is foreshadowed in Psalm 68, 18, that as a result of his victorious ascent and seating at the right hand of the Father, he is now distributing gifts, gifts of leadership to the church, his body. And that's where this whole passage is going to. But the, the wealth of background to this is, is profound. So we'll continue that study uh, next Sunday morning. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to study these things and to see how, how much is done and covered in the Scripture, how many things from the Old Testament a foreshadowed picture and give a, a a much more robust understanding to us of your ascension, of the ascension and session of Christ at your right hand. And Father, we do thank you that we have an understanding of this, that we are seated in Christ now. That's our position, our legal identity as members of your royal family. We are in Christ. We are his body. And that we have a specific and significant role to play in reference to the entire Uh, this entire angelic revolt. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and that each time we study them that our understanding of your plan and purpose for us increases a little bit because we have such a significant role to play in terms of your plan in history. Now, Father, we thank you for this time, and we pray, too, for anyone who's here or anyone who is listening online, that if they've never trusted Christ as Savior, if they're not uh, uh, sure of their eternal salvation, they've never understood it, that it is very simple, that Christ died for our sins. He paid the penalty. He was in our place. And when you uh, brought that darkness on Golgotha, and during that time, you imputed, you legally credited to him our sin so that your righteousness and justice would be satisfied by a perfect payment, that that secured the foundation for our salvation. But we must accept it as a free gift. We must trust in Christ. We must believe that he died for us. He died for me. He paid for my sin so that I will have everlasting life. 
We pray that you would make that clear to each one of us and to those who need it, that they would respond in faith in Christ. And Father, we ask that uh, as we think about and restudy what we have looked at this morning, that you would make it more and more clear to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.